For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of work. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Happy Wednesday, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of Richard Skipper Celebrates. Who or what are you celebrating today? For those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. My show is all about celebrating, celebrating life, celebrating art, celebrating artists, because I believe if we take the time, there's something to celebrate each and every day. Today, believe it or not, is National Evaluate Your Life Day. So I've been doing a little bit of that today, contemplating my navel, as if you will. Uh, it's also, as Natasha Lombardi points out, uh, LGBT Awareness Day. So thank you for that, uh, Natasha. And thank you all for being here tonight. I would also like to celebrate a very special woman who means a lot to me in my life, and that's Judy Torsky. Uh, a few weeks ago, Judy and I, well, actually a little over a month ago, Judy and I were talking and somehow Sheila Nevins came up and I said I was such a fan of the work that she's done and her contributions uh, and her body of worth, as I always like to refer to it. And, uh, and as we were talking, uh, Judy was telling me about this incredible book called You Don't Look Your Age and Other Fairy Tales. So I immediately went online and I ordered the book, but Sheila's wonderful assistant sent me the audio of the book while I was waiting for this to arrive. And I sat down and I listened in one day to the entire book. Uh, I think it is one of the best, if not the best, audiobooks ever produced. And I wanna thank Sheila for being here tonight. And I'm gonna begin by asking who or what are you celebrating today? I'm not the kind of person who celebrates, Richard. I'm not, really? a, I'm not a positive person. Are you sure you want me on this show? <laughs> I hope that by the end of the show that you will be a little bit more positive. I'm a tragedian. I see the sad side. Honestly, Richard, I'm not a, I'm not a celebratory person. I don't, I mean, I remember when I was young, asking my mother, this is true, not to put candles on my cake because it, I didn't want them. It just made me look like I was gonna blow out life and I didn't wanna do it. I'm not normal, Richard, you should know well, that. Well, I wanna tell you, whether you celebrate or not, I would like to celebrate you. Well, that's fine. That's is, okay. Is there a check with it or does it just come with the words? No, that's fine. And I'm you know, greedy. in addition to not celebrating, I'm also a greedy person. But I want to tell you, I do, I mean, reading this book and listening to the audio and congratulations on the great artists that you brought to the table uh, to uh, read uh, each of the chapters of the book. Um, we are going to go back a little bit because I, learning about your childhood, and I asked for a few photographs of your childhood because I always like to go back to where it all began. Uh, and... Uh, and there were things that I did read about you. Uh, here you are. I love this photograph. He's adorable. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and I love this on your swing set. I didn't have a swing set. It was someone else's swing. Yes. But I remember, you know, I also read, uh, I mean, Sheila, I grew up in a household uh, where I was never encouraged. 
I was never told you're good enough. You're this. You're. And when I left home at the age of 18 in 1979, which was when you began with HBO, the year that I came to New York, um, not only was I running towards something, I was running away from something. Oh, interesting. Very so interesting. perhaps you and I have more in common than you may believe. Maybe we were running in different directions. <laughs> Uh, and I also read a quote, and I hope that I get the quote uh, correctly. And the quote was, you can't come up with an idea if you feel good about yourself. See, I think that. I think sadness is the great joiner. It's the great thing that makes us all alike. And you, you know, in other words, if I had to celebrate anything, it would be that we all can be sad about the same things together. It's easy to laugh. I can make you laugh. You can mm-hmm. kill yourself. You can go to a club. But I think empathy, which is to me the most important thing, comes usually from the sadness that we share. You know, we share sadness in this world. I agree with that. But do you feel that empathy is lacking a lot in today's world? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely lacking. And, and um, it's the thing I really value the most. You're not, not saying, I feel what you feel, but hug me. Tell me it's okay. Tell me I'll get through it. I mean, we can never feel what someone else feels, but we can empathize with their sorrows. It's hard to empathize with laughter and happiness for me. Okay. I'm nuts, I'm nuts Richard. No, <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> no, I, re- I read or I heard on an interview, I, I went back and I really delved in, right. and that when you were a young girl, that if you went to uh, someone's home and they had fine silverware or something and you saw the initials uh, or their uh, monograms on the silverware, uh, that that really affected you at such an early age. Um, did you feel growing up in your household, they, there was lack? I was poor, okay, but I went to the best schools. I went to, you know, Little Red Schoolhouse. I went to the High School of Performing Arts. I went to Barnard, I went to Yale. I was always on a scholarship and I was always working in the summers when other people were doing other things. My girlfriends had houses with doormen. I didn't, my dad was kind of a gambler in a, mm-hmm. a post office clerk. I always wonder to this day when mail arrives, you know, that how it got there because my dad booked bets at the post office. I had a very different kind of upbringing. My mother had this disease called Raynaud's disease and scleroderma. And so she had lots of amputations and lots of things that were made her unable to be as kind as a mother might be to a daughter, you know? Mm-hmm. So it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. And, um, I would go to these rich houses and there would be doormen and there would be someone serving. And because I went to these schools mm-hmm. where in the main people had money and then I would invite them to my house. I remember one girl whose father was very wealthy said when she came into my house, are you moving? Because the furniture was kind of lined up, you know? Um, and my mother was walking with a, with AIDS. And so we had to push everything back against the side of the wall. I was ashamed of not having everything. Sheila, I, I know that your uncle put you through these schools. My great uncle. He was my mother's uncle. My mother's um, uncle. My mother's my mother's mother's brother. He was he he was an immigrant who came here and invented the steam iron, the de jour, D E J U R. They were French Jews. 
uh, steam iron and um, a stenoret machine. So secretaries could talk into a machine and, and uh, bosses could, and then secretaries could stay late and type, uh, type the letters, you know? So they, he was a complicated great uncle to have, or whatever we called him, uncle Harry and uncle Harry paid partly for Barnard and certainly helped me through Yale. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm grateful to him, but he wasn't easy either. He told me, if you're real smart, I said, Uncle Harry, I work so hard and I get B pluses and sometimes I get an A. He said, if you're really smart, you get A's. I mean, it was hard. Well, I, I want to ask about Uncle Harry. Uh, did he... You don't think he's listening, do you? Uh, uh, yeah. Were you ambitious as a young girl? Always or? ambitious. Always ambitious. Always wanted what other people had and was always ashamed that I didn't have it. Um, yeah. Now, initially, you started out, if I and correct me if I'm wrong, to be an actress. Well, I went to the High School of Performing Arts. I was pretty. I started out in the dance department, but I, I really couldn't keep up with everybody else. And then they wanted to keep me because I was good academically, so they switched me into the drama department. So did I want to be an actress? Um, I wanted not to have to go to the local public school. Um, I wanted to show Uncle Harry that I could get into a good college and, you know, that, so I don't think I ever wanted to be an actress. When I went to Yale drama school, I majored in directing. I didn't really want to be an actress. People always thought I was an actress because I had nice hair, and mm. I was tall and thin, but I, I don't think so. I don't think I could act. I don't want to be looked at, you know. Well, let me ask you this. Do you feel that your ambition was based on what you didn't want more than what you wanted? Oh, what a question. Um, mostly based on what I wanted. Mostly based on what I wanted. I wanted to be like the young girls that were around me that had, you know, wore different clothes and expensive sweaters and things like that. You know, I, I wanted to be like, I wanted to be rich. I wanted to have what other people had. And I didn't want to save the world. My mother was a communist. She wanted to save the world. And she was very ill. But um, no, I didn't want to save the world. No, I didn't mind saving it. But then I just wanted to have things. I wanted not to have to wear the same dress to everybody's Sweet 16 party. I wanted to wear something different. I wanted somebody to say, where'd you get that? And I remember there was a store called Bonwood Teller. And I said to my Mother, one day, could I ever go to that store? And she said, we can't go to that store. Mm. Went to S. Klein's on 14th Street and bought a bunch of dresses. But I didn't have, I, you know, I didn't have anything. And I thought having things would make a difference. But as I got older and had things, that wasn't it anyway. But that was certainly my ambition as a young girl. To be well, able to be like other girls. Talk about the trajectory of your career. When you got married the first time, uh, you and your husband, you traveled the world, you had this idyllic life, but he did not want you to be in the, uh, to be an actress. To yeah, have a he, wanted, he didn't want me, he wanted me to bring his clothes to the cleaners. Remember it was in the sixties. Yes, yes. Gloria Steinem had just peeked out of the eggshell. I, I, um, I thought there was something a little wrong with me because I didn't want to take his things to the cleaners. And I didn't want to cook dinner and I didn't, 
I didn't want to be someone's wife. I wanted to be someone's equal, but it wasn't the time. And um, it was very difficult. But I wanted to be married because I wanted to go places and do things and you couldn't do them by yourself. I wanted to travel. And so in a sense, he was a conductor, not really a husband. I hope he's not listening to this. I don't even know where he is. Do you know where he is? No, 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 no surprises. He's not coming on tonight. So. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. So, uh, but as, I mean, what was the deciding factor for you when you said enough, this is, I'm leaving this and you walked away from the marriage? I think, oh, I ran away. I didn't walk away. Um, what made me decide to get out of it? I thought that I had talent. I thought that I had something that other people didn't have and that I could market it in some way. Part of it was that I was fun, mostly a defense, and part was that I could tell stories. And, you know, and I didn't have to be the center of those stories. Other people could be in those stories. And I, I don't know, I just, I got into television almost by accident to get away from the theater because when I, there were no women directors then. I went, who's going to hire me as a director? I've got a master's in directing from Yale. You know, the only thing I could do was really, you know, maybe be a PA at a theater somewhere. But I wanted to interact with people and create things. And then television came. I knew nothing about television, not literally nothing, um, until I decided that television was really theater that you could shut the lights and that could be the screen. And when you turned it on, the curtain went up. So in that sense, being a directing major at Yale prepared me for seeing television as something more than just a, you know, a box with, you know, supermarket sweepstakes. And I got interested in telling stories on that, you know, that black screen mm -hmm. or gray screen, I guess it was then. But anyway, am I making any sense? No, you're making perfect sense. Uh, and I'm right there with you. Okay. Uh, you I've been enough psychiatrist to be able to, you know. <laughs> I, I think that if I was not doing this, that's the profession that I would have probably. You would have been great at it. Well, How much do you charge an hour? I'm available. <laughs> Call <laughs> me once a week and we'll talk. Um, but, once a week, uh, I need more than that, Richard. Okay, I, I'm here I'm with you. I'm going to go far once a week. Um, uh, I also read that next to your mom, you felt that Gloria Steinem was the most important woman that you've ever met. Uh, and you met her later in life. Um, reading your book and listening to your book, um, there's such honesty in terms of you telling your story at this point, and I'm going to get there in a few moments. But do you feel that you've always been a feminist or did that come later in life? I didn't as well? even know what it meant. I just knew I didn't want to take somebody's, laundry in every day. I didn't want to be a good wife. I didn't want to cook dinner on a certain time. I I didn't know that I could not do that. I mean, here I was in America, the land of great freedom, but I didn't know I had a right until she came along. I then understood that possibly this yearning I had to be like all the men around me and to have their jobs and to earn a good salary like they did. I didn't have to be just a yes girl. Mm -hmm. I was a yes girl, even with a master's from Yale and even having done well in college, I was obedient to men. I didn't know that I could be equal to them. I really did not know. 
I thought that my role in, I mean, I wasn't in Iraq or Iran or Afghanistan, but I really felt that if I wanted to be perceived of as a pretty young woman, that I had to be obedient. I really did think that. You felt that you had to play the game. Absolutely. And I felt I had to be pretty for men's sake, that I had to be sexy for men's sake, that I had to unbutton two or three buttons if I wanted the next job. Well, I was watching a documentary the other night um, on CNN um, about Rupert Murdoch, and they were talking about Roger Ailes and what he wanted, what he required of the women who worked at the Fox network. And they were all pretty much, with all due respect, I say to all of them, subservient to what he, his desires and what his wishes were. I can't even imagine what that scene was like for women. Well, um, I, lived, I lived it. Talk back was forbidden. And that was it. You just did what you were told to do. And you you behaved. And you, you know, lusted after the next job as best you could. And um, it was hard. It was very hard. It was very difficult. I mean, and then when Gloria came along and I saw women marching and, you know, I thought, hey, you know, maybe there's a place for me in noise. Maybe I can make noise and get out of this because I didn't know what else to do. I really didn't know. Um, I know now, but I didn't know then. I mean, I, I'm, I'm an old woman. I'm an 83-year-old woman. I've been around a very, very long time. So when I was 20, it was 60-some-odd years ago, I didn't have the any options except to be funny and pretty and unbutton my blouse and, you know, just just obey. I watched the interview that you did with Gloria Steinem, and she said that she reached the point where when someone calls her a bitch, she says, thank you. Um, When did you feel that, or when did you begin to feel that you were finding your voice? You mean becoming a bitch? Uh, No, no. (laughs) Uh, When did, uh, no, I would never. I guess around six or seven years into HBO. I began to think that just because I worked for someone didn't mean that I might not be as good as them or maybe even better than them. And that they needed me because it was growing very rapidly. It was kind of like I was on the bottom of the pyramid and it was moving up and getting, you know, and I knew that if I didn't jump ahead, I would stay on the bottom. And I think somewhere around in my very early 30s, I started to holler back. And I started not being afraid. Um, I was afraid that I would lose what I had, you know, and, um, but I'm not afraid anymore. <laughs> well, God, thank God for that. And, but you know, you've given so many people through the documentary. Uh, I mean, you really gave us a resurgence and, and I love documentary films and I've loved many of yours, but when did you, uh, I, this idea of giving other people a true voice to be able to tell. Ah, that's a good question. I really, because I couldn't get into the theater because nobody wanted me in the theater except as an actress. I felt that television was a way to get real people who could act their stories. And that somehow if they could tell stories that evoked empathy, compassion, sorrow, occasionally joy, uh, very occasionally, but that I could make something of television that would be like theater. And so it wouldn't be that theater didn't want me. It would be that I could make something a little bit different from television, which was that I could have real people tell dramatic stories. And that it would, television 
docus could be a form of drama. I thought when they said there's an opening at a docu department, I thought, oh, I'm going to have to do something about the CIA or about FDR, or I'm going to have to do a bio. But then when I got to HBO and it was like a startup when I got there, anything goes, anything happens, fill up the hours, Sheila, you know, do docus, whatever the word is. We didn't call them, call them docutainment. Mm -hmm. And then I sort of thought, oh, I can do sex shows. I can do kids shows. I can do, you know, stories about people who are impaired in some way, gay stories about people who are not accepted. I can do drama on this screen and it'll be in people's living rooms and they don't have to pay to go see it. And so it was kind of like an awakening. It probably started with looking at films like The Salesman by the Maisels or Barbara Castle's yeah. Harlan County, where I saw real people dealing with real life issues and they were as theatrical as plays. Maybe the lines weren't as good as Arthur Miller or Clifford Odets, but the stories were based on people's struggles to survive. And I got very interested in that. I mean, passionate about it and tireless. I'm still pretty tireless for an old broad. Well, but I, um, great. Uh, in the trajectory of your career, yeah. you were also offered a position, uh, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, at 60 Minutes, and you turned it down. Well, because I don't like to be looked at. I like to be pretty. And then at some point, you can't be pretty anymore. So you, you know, if someone says, you, you look good, they mean you look good for your age, you know. Um, but there was a time when I just plain looked good. I don't like being watched. I like to watch other people. I don't like, I don't mind being the center, but I don't want to be looked at. You know, I don't mind my stuff, my work being the center, mm -hmm. but I don't particularly like um, too much attention. I think that's true. I think I'm being true. And when you got to HBO, did you have a game plan in terms of what you wanted to accomplish or did you feel that- I always wanted whoever was my boss's job. That was my game plan. Am I a smart- game plan, everyone. I love that. <laughs> I don't know. I always used to think, can I do that? But I never pushed myself the way women have it for me. I'm sorry, I have a cold, so I have no, that's, and I, I, have I have a plain old fashioned cold. I'm an old fashioned girl. Um, I, I wanted the next, whatever was next. Next up, I would think. If I were to put anything on a tombstone, I think it would say next up. Um, no, I was never never satisfied. I like to do my own film, my own thing. I don't like to listen to other people. Um, I think I know it all. And at least if I don't know it all, I know as much as the next person. So, you know, I felt free somewhere around the... I don't know, somewhere around the second year around HBO, because everything was possible. Everybody talks about startups. Cable was a startup. Mm -hmm. Cable was a startup. It was, oh my God, Sheila, you know, I want to make a sex show. Okay, we have Cinemax, make a sex show. I want to do a kid's show. My kid loves this book, Goodnight Moon. I want to do it. Okay, do Goodnight Moon. You know, it was like, woo! <laughs> it was a jack-in-the-box and I went, it was all there. And it was successful most of the time. And you can't be right all the time, but it's only a question of being successful most of the time. And I was doing well. And so I stayed there for 35 years. I know, was there a moment where you felt that you had made it or did you always feel that you were reaching for the brass ring? 
I'll always reach for the brass ring. Did I think I had made it? I don't think I've ever made it. No. Wow. No. Well, no. Uh, I think I've done a good job, but I don't know that I've made it. I'm not sure what that would be. So you, were there, I mean, in the scheme of things, were you, once you started establishing uh, you and your brand at HBO, were you getting a lot of yeses or were there no's as well? I got so many yeses. I bathed in yeses. I really did. I luxuriated in yeses because I was cheap, which I learned later on uh, compared to other people. I was extremely productive. And I had no fear, you know, I would, you know, I could do late night sex shows. I could do early morning kids shows. I could do tragic docus. I could do, I could do anything, just fill up the hours. You know, when I went there, it was eight hours. Then it was 12 hours. Then it was 16 hours. Then it was 20 hours. Then it was 24 hours. So the point was go, go, go girl, go. So I goed, <laughs> I did it. You know. With all the documentaries that you did, was there one that really took hold of you that was hard to let go of? I think I'm case hardened in the sense that when it's over, it's over. Um, no, I mean, not really. No, no. I mean, and the birds, you have to let them fly. I did like one about a pelican that uh, was crippled by the oil spill. Yeah. And um, in New Orleans, and he um, he had to be trained to, to fly and trained to learn how to eat, and, and then he was set free and he flew. And maybe I love that one because it really worked. It was you know called Saving Pelican Eight Nine something, and it was completely unrecognized. Nobody watched it, but I thought it was a great document because it started with a crippled, mm -hmm. and then he could fly. So it was kind of joyful like so you, you were at, you were at hbo for 35 years um, when yeah. did everything when did things begin to change for you there i think i was earning too much money you know i think that um every time there was a change and i'm being very honest but at this point it doesn't matter does it um i i uh, once accidentally got somebody else's check this was way before direct deposit mm. um the two checks were together and I put the check in my, what I thought was one check, my check in my pocketbook. And then when I got home to put it in the bank, I pulled out somebody else's check attached to mine. And that person was doing the man doing exactly what I was doing, less productive, maybe a little more um, Hollywood. And um, he was earning almost three times what I was earning. Oh my God. Wow. And, um, he was very good at what he did. And I was very good at what I did. And I went barging into the office the next day and I, I showed the checks and um, I got a raise. And then I would do that every single, I mean, I kept doing it. I kept saying, you know, I did this, I did this, I did this. And I deserve my 2%, my 3%. You stay somewhere long enough, 2%, 3% adds up. And then when you finally are on your way out, you think, holy shit, I was earning a lot of money. Um, and I was earning a lot of money. And um, at least to me, it was a lot. And um, it was time for me to go. I was older. I was earning a lot. The merger was about to take place. And um, 
maybe I was holding other people back because I was somewhat dictatorial and, and um, possessive of my area. Uh, whatever it was, I left and, um, you know, started all over again. What was that an easy decision for you to make at that point? Or they made it for me. I mean, I was not smart enough in terms of corporate America to understand that I was being pushed out the door because outside the door, they were giving me bonuses and things and, you know, promises and whatever. But in fact, I was being pushed out. Um, and then I realized I was being pushed out and that I'd have to start all over again. But when you get pushed out, Richard, you, you lose your friends or who you thought was your friends, were your friends. They, they, um, I used to always have flowers. People were always selling me flowers and, you know, and then suddenly the day that I was out of HBO, the phone didn't ring. I didn't get any uh, calls. I, I, how well I know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's horrible. horrible. And the people who love me, you look so beautiful. I love you. Oh, you have a headache. Let me get you an Advil. Oh my God, those shoes, they're so spectacular. Where did you get them? You always look. All those people vanished from my life. They vanished. They didn't just not call. They were gone. G-O-N-E, gone. My phone did not ring. My lunch dates did not happen. I was no longer wanted. Oh, you're so busy. If you had just time for me, you know. Never, nothing, zero. So I learned a lot about friendship and I learned a lot about loneliness and I learned a lot about who mattered. And I've never done that to anyone else, what was done to me. Um, as soon as someone gets kicked, I uh, you know, call them, talk to them, because I know what it feels like. Um, There's these people, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to No, talk. go ahead. I'm sorry I interrupted you. No, I was going to say that a lot of these people went on that were in other companies that were buying things from HBO or doing things, went on to head major streaming services and, you know, big jobs and big companies. And when I was a buyer, they were loyal and true and loved me and sent me flowers and my hair and, you know, everything. And then when I was out, they didn't return my calls. Wow. Yeah, no, you know, nothing, zero. <laughs> you tell a story again in your uh, interview with Gloria Steinem when the first time you met her and when you introduced yourself to her and something she said to you that changed the way that you dealt with everyone from that point on. I love that story. It is the most extraordinary thing. I was going from, it was uh, somewhere in California, some hotel, and I was, there was a path from the cheaper part of the hotel to the more expensive part of the hotel. And I was coming from the cheaper part and she was coming the other way. Um, and I said, Gloria Steinem, you know, and she said, I, I know who I am. Who are you? And I said, I'm Sheila Nevins. I work at HBO. I, you know, I'm, I'm just like astounded to meet you. And she stood there and she said, tell me what you do. Tell me about yourself. And I realize I'm telling Gloria Steinem about me and she's not telling me anything about why she's there or what she's doing or whatever. And um, it, it was a good lesson. It's Even amazing. I, feel it, I tend to ask people that what I call in my head, the Gloria Steinem interest question. She was really interested. You know, it was a woman doing in, in California. It was probably the eighties, early eighties. Uh, what was I doing there? You know, I was carrying stuff. 
and what did I do and film and all that. And then I, that was it. That was when I first met her. And, uh, you know, I literally fell in love with her because she was all good things. She was everything. And I remember when she said, this is what 50 looked like. And I went to this birthday party because she was 50 and I was probably 42 at the time. I don't remember. But I thought to myself, God, she doesn't lie about her age. You know, she, she says it. And then I, I sort of stopped lying about my age. I thought, fuck it. This is it. <laughs> Take it with you. You're alive. You know, a lot of your roommates aren't there anymore. Just go for it, girl. And I don't have any problem with that. I, you know, I, the woman I work with, and she said, I said to her one day, how old are you? And she said, I never, I never tell. Here I am, you know, sprouting out that I'm, I don't know if sprouting is the right word, but just saying, you know, I'm 80 at the time, you know, and, and here's this woman who's probably 51 and she's not going to tell me how old she is. What's the secret? Mm. What is the secret about aging? Why are we so ashamed of it? It's like death. It's going to come. If you're lucky, it comes when you're really old. If you're not lucky, it comes when you're younger. You know, it's. Well, Carol Channing was a dear friend of mine. And Carol said, you know, when people were coming up to her saying, well, you're 90. She's, it just happens. <laughs> if you're lucky enough, it happens. But yeah. before I move, I want to go back to Gloria Steinem for a moment, because, again, uh, you did a documentary on her and she basically gave you carte blanche to do what you wanted to do because she trusted you and she didn't really get involved. And then she came in and she saw it. And then the, the, her response after. She, everybody who you do a bio about when they're alive wants to see every bit of it. They want to know, you know, did I look good? What did it say? Men, women, it doesn't matter. Um, Gloria, um, let us tell the story of her life whether it was brilliant or not, the docu itself, the story was certainly brilliant. Um, I don't really know, but it was, I was very nervous. Um, but she was very honest and very open and I expected the usual call, which is, you know, can I see 10 minutes, you know, how did you do the thing about this affair? What did you do about my relationship with so-and-so? I expected at every turn, there would be a call. After all, she lived in the seventies and I lived on the time in the 80s. So what was the big deal? Never call. And when the film was finished and we screened it for her in the HBO screening room, the first thing she did when my bosses walked in, I've always had bosses, when my bosses walked in was say, they have done a fabulous, she hadn't seen it yet. She said, they have done a fabulous job. It is wonderful that you have these women with me and Jackie wonderful that you, you have these women working for you. And I thought, holy shit, no one's ever done that to me before. But you know, what the heck? So we run the show and it's on a big screen in the screening room at HBO. And she just does one, I'm sort of watching her out. So she's one little tearful. And then it ends and the lights come on. And she says, thank you so much to all of us to thank you so much. And um, that was our documentary on Gloria Steinem. Wow. That was it. First, before she even saw it, she congratulated the people that were there on the fact that they had had us make it. And then she just said, thank you. And then I walked her down. We had called a car for her. I walked her downstairs and I expected her to say something, you know, like, you know, the one shot, like everybody else does. Not a word. She's an unusual, gifted gift to the universe she just is she i agree is. with you totally i i think that yeah, she, there's no other way grounded in being her authentic self 
Yeah, she really, you can learn as many lessons as you want from her, but you can't be her. She just comes from good, you know? Now, did, I want to ask, I want to talk about your book. Um, did, were you always, uh, did you keep journals or anything throughout your life? Because uh, I understand. I never, write anything. I never took a note in college. I never take a note on a film. I don't know how to write. Well, I would disagree with you on that one. Uh, no. <laughs> story, but I can't write a note. Uh, you know, when I went to a party. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you, I, did, I did write one thing. I went to a party, what I call the once was party, where everybody once was something. You know, they're all, no one's young. And everybody, you know, what do you do? I once was the head of so-and-so. What do you do? I once owned such and such. So I call them the once was party. And at a certain point, those are the parties. I don't like parties anyway. This woman came over to me. She said, are you Sheila Nemons? I said, yeah. Uh -huh. She said, I'm writing your obit for the New York Times. Oh. <laughs> it's true. And I said, oh, you know, don't, don't, you know, oh, okay, good. Okay. No matter how I tried to escape her with the once wasers, she kept following me around. She said, you know, I'm doing something. I'm, I'm doing David Geffen's and I'm, He's bringing me pictures. We should have lunch together. I said, yeah, okay, 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 okay. And I kept dodging this woman. And then finally, I said to the woman who gave the party, I, I really don't want to come anymore. She has this party every year. I really don't want to come if she's going to be here because it was kind of like the Grim Reaper. I mean, I know I'm old. I know I'll die. I understand all that. But I really don't want a pre-obit, okay? And so then I wrote her a letter and I lied. And I said, and it was a good short story. I said, I have been to my doctor. He says, I have the heart of a 60-year-old. None of this is true. Um, I have no high cholesterol, untrue. I have no this, I have no that. So I'm afraid anything you would write now would be out of date by the time uh, my end, my termination came. So if I were you, I wouldn't. It was horrifying. It was horrifying. May I ask what compelled you to write the letter? I mean, it seems to me and predictiveness. I love revenge. Don't you like revenge? <laughs> no, but it, it seems to me like for me, from where I'm sitting, that it was almost as if you were giving her a little power, but you oh interesting not away from her. Possibly. Possibly I was giving her power. But basically I was um saying fuck you. Which I can say, but I you know. Uh, but I will never know if she's the one who writes it, but I will have some spies somehow. Somebody will have to tell me if, if she did it, you know, I don't know. She wanted me to bring her pictures, you know, like other people have brought her pictures that they're like, what the fuck do I care what's there when I'm dead? <laughs> All I could think of was actually was cause I know someone who didn't get a story. They just got like an alphabetical listing and it's very expensive. And I thought, oh, my God, I, I uh, when a friend of mine passed away, uh, her uh, significant other uh, boyfriend, man friend, he said, I don't care what it costs. I want her to have the best obituary in the New York Times. Uh, and it cost almost two thousand dollars. No. And that's one of the alphabetical ones. Right. But no, we got a little bit more well, than that. One on top. Oh, I don't. I don't know. You could pay for those, but yeah. um, whatever it was, I thought, well, it'll be free. They'll save some money. The ones that are left. So, yeah. But yeah. I mean, you said you said that you didn't consider yourself a writer, but these uh, essays. No, no, uh, I think I'm a writer. I just don't write things down unless I'm telling a story. I like to tell stories. I can write a story, but I don't write notes. I never wrote note in college. I never write a note about a film. 
um, with all the things and the deficits that come with aging, which are absolutely true, um, I don't really forget uh, a film. I can remember everything I think about it and what should change. I don't know if I had 40, I don't have 40 anymore, but I don't think I ever really forget segments of films and things that I think about it. Um, I, I can't, I think it must be some learning deficit. I can't watch and write at the same time, you know? And so I, I can't, like I could write a paper in school, but I can't digest it here and then write, like people can do that. They can look up and write and up. I can't do that. I don't have that ability. So I, I'm not a note taker. Well, what was your process? Did you uh, dictate into a recorder or? Well, it was a um, an early website called wowowow.com. And Liz Smith was on it and um, Whoopi and uh, Joni Evans. There were a lot of people that put this together and I think they ultimately sold it. And they asked me to write short stories for it. And um, it was a nice crowd of women. And I did write short stories. One or two would appear in the book. But um, I enjoyed writing the stories. I had a good time writing them. And they didn't take me a long time. They're by no means Shakespeare. But they were experiential and they were based on facts like adultery and um, loss of sex drive as you get older and... Uh, all kinds of things that people don't like to talk about. Uh, it, you know, it was just an interesting experience of things you don't say at parties. And so I could expand on them with imaginary people who were most often myself, or at least someone I knew very closely, like the woman who hides the pill that will make her husband sexual mm-hmm. and gives him another pill with the same color so he won't go running around at night. What's it called? I forgot the name of it. What's that one that you take when you want to have an erection? Viagra. Viagra, right. Viagra. Right. So she 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 empties his Viagra bottle and fills it with pills the same color, which she gets from the local pharmacist. And there's some over-the-counter pill. And suddenly he comes home more. And he's, you know, back with her again. You know, I like writing things like that. No, there are so many great stories, and <laughs> you. I know that you, uh, you as a producer, um, yeah. as you were writing this, did you imagine uh, that it, uh, the first of all, I, I would love to see uh, a documentary on the making of this uh, of the of the audio book uh, because I'm going back. Um, you know how it happened. I'll tell you exactly how it happened. You didn't ask. You want to know? I do want to know. Yes, I was going to get there. <laughs> I, you know, yes. amount of time. Um, it was Larry Kramer's 80th birthday, and I wrote a poem for him. Mm-hmm. And Christian Baranski was in the house. And Larry had told me many times, because I had done a bio on him, and um, I loved him very much. Mm-hmm. And, um, I wrote a poem for him on his birthday. And Christian Baranski is a friend of his. I didn't know her. I mean, certainly knew who she was, but... I didn't, I was kind of embarrassed to read it. There were some friends of his and it was in my home in Connecticut. And so I said to this actress, you know, would you mind reading this poem that I read to Larry? And she's for Larry for his birthday. And she said, is it okay with him? You know, she didn't know what I was writing. Maybe it was, um, she didn't know me. So I asked his husband, David, I said, David, I wrote this. Is it okay if Christine reads it? And he said, yeah. Yeah, sure. It's nice. Larry will like it. So I we went in the other room with the cake and it was that time, you know, 
And I said, you know, okay, everybody, this is my poem to Larry and Christine Bransky's gonna read it. And when she read it, I thought, you know, whoa, why don't I get well-known people that I've known to read my short stories, some of which I'd written for WOW and some which I was gonna write for a book, which Larry told me to write. And um, so that's how it all happened. She read this poem and I had to say, I thought to myself, fuck, that's a good poem, Sheila. You did it, you know, and Larry laughed and, and, um, and it was full of love and it was not a great poem, I'm no Shakespeare, but it affected people in some way. And the way she read it was better than I had ever written it. And that was when I thought, well, why don't I call these people that I've worked with over the years and ask for a favor? You know, I never asked for anything. So that's what I did. And that's how the book. Well, came. one of my favorite chapters or uh, on the audiobook uh, is Gail King uh, being in the studio. And then her reaction at the end of the section that she read, uh, no spoilers, everyone buy the book. Uh, but, uh, and you respond were you in the studio with each? Oh, of all them? the time with each one of them, absolutely. And when Meryl Streep, I, I, I don't really know Meryl Streep that well, but I put the book. I just, you know, I feel funny. The book is five and a half years old. Anyway, I put the book outside the door of her office at Tribeca, and I put a note inside, and said, "Any of these stories here are yours." Although I'd had several well-known people read stories, I figured I'll knock them out and use Meryl but I didn't think she would respond. And um, <laughs> then I got in the mail at HBO and I thought it was like a joke because it said M Streep. I mean, M Streep could have been moish. <laughs> it said something like, I loved your book, da 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 da. I'd like to read this particular story. And then I looked at the address and it was a small little note. I save it, I have it here. And a little note and then according, it had some, some address in the village and I screamed, I ran out in the hall. I said, does anyone know where Meryl Streep lives? They said, I'll call so-and-so's office. You know, he probably has an address. So we call her agent and it was her, it wasn't a joke, it was really her. And she read it. She read the last thing in the book and it was great. And I was so nervous. I kept thinking while she was doing it, I kept thinking, is that Meryl Streep there? And I'm here and she's reading this poem about, well, poem, whatever it was, short story about my mother. And she sounds exactly like my mother sounded. She's such an extraordinary actress that she was able to ingest the character, knowing nothing about the character. And then she read it once and she said, I think I can do better. Better? I mean, come on, you know, gold. So then she read it again. And then I walked her to the door. It was a rainy day and we found her umbrella and she left. And uh, so I That chapter out. really got me. Yes. Yeah, um, was that the starting point for the, your book or... Did no, you, I don't. I don't remember that, Richard. I don't know when I got to that. It was the reason for the book, but I don't know that I ever thought I would be able to do it, to write it. You know, because it was too close. I don't know. I read it to the Barnard. Um, they, they invited me to some convocation, and I, I read it because it took place at Chockfull of Nuts near Barnard. But it was, you know, about my mother's disability, and you know, I don't know, whatever. And I know that that actually happened, that epi that yeah. you tell that story in the book. It actually happened. And it really happened so, it's so accurate that it's hard for me to actually read it because I, you know, having, I'm not an actress, but I know a lot about Stanislavski. I actually, when I read it, am in the actual chock full of nuts. 
I can smell it, I can feel it, and I'm there, you know? And my mother's been dead for 25 or 30 years now. So it's very odd. I can sit with her in that restaurant and have someone insult the stump that is her arm because of her disease, and I can hear it. So I don't like to be close to it. So when she read it, it was very scary mm-hmm. because she was such a good actress and she was my mother at that time when she was reading it. I mean, she's incredible, but it was painful. I'm not ashamed to tell you I was a puddle. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it really, oh. it got me right here. And you uh, your mother too? No, no. But I mean, just the fact that somebody could be that insulting to another person. People are insulting to disabilities. They are insulting. Avoiding is another form of disability. You know, pretending you don't see it. There's a blind man on the corner and you cross the street and you leave him there. You know, in other words, that's insulting too. It's not only words, it's behavior. And so, you know, but she, I I know her. I've seen her many times in life. Mm. With each person that came on board, um, another chapter that, again, on the audiobook, and again, everyone get the audiobook, uh, was the chapter Ellen Burstyn. Oh, do you believe it? Ah, that was incredible. Ellen, and every time she read it, she read it with the same amount of emotion. And it was based truly on my son's addiction issues, which are over now. But um, they were based on the many meetings I went to where they basically said, get the kid out, let him go. Let him hit rock bottom. Let him hit rock bottom and he'll come back. But after I'd been to enough of those meetings, I saw enough kids hit rock bottom and never get up again. And then we did a a series at HBO on addiction. And I realized that addiction was not a choice. It was an an illness and that it was up to me to correct his illness. And I did. You said at this point that you realized it was not a choice. I mean, was there a time in your life where you thought it was? Yes, you go to those meetings. I mean, I'm not against AA or any of those things, but you go to any of those meetings and it's willpower. It's community and willpower, but there is, you know, medicine and there is, if it's an illness, if it was diabetes or, or a broken foot, it would be treated medically. And so if it's an addictive personality, it's possible that, you know, it needs some sort of medication, but I'm not a doctor, but I know that it makes a difference when something that is your brain is somehow modified by pharmaceuticals, that doesn't mean you're taking uh, opiates. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a very thin line between too much, enough, and too little when it comes to psychotropic medication. And I'm by no means an expert, but I do know when it works, it works. So Um, this book was written five years ago. um, And uh, uh, absolutely. And uh, we're talking uh, tonight about this. Uh, and again, I thank you for being here because you said you don't like being in the spotlight and having the focus on you. But these stories are so. Judy cool. made me do it. <laughs> Judy, I love you, Judy, for doing it. I hope, that, I hope that it's been a good experience for you, however. It's been lovely. I was not looking forward to it. But having done it, I really look forward to doing it some other time. Well, thank, thank you, you so much. I was scared. I thought I wouldn't be able to say what I want to say. And um, I don't know you. I mean, I met you in front of other people. So we're not exactly finished yet. Because you I've take got medical insurance. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes, I do. Um, 
I, um, but I want to ask, you know, in the time since you've written the, the book, have you revisited these stories? And is there anything that you would have done or said differently? Probably. If I knew that the audio book was going to be so good and that these women were going to help me, I probably would have found someone to push the audio book because it was, you know, I had everybody. I had Gloria read a story. I had Gloria Vanderbilt read a story. I had Whoopi. I had... You Audrey know, McDonald. Uh, I mean, I, I just Rue called up people. Oh, Rue was lovely. I, you know, I had people that I had known and I just picked up the phone. I mean... Um, it was just, and nobody said no. Nobody said no, and nobody got paid because I was just a book, you know? I mean, I, you know, I called Gail King. I couldn't believe that these people were, I, I got a lot of confidence. Larry helped me too, though, because he gave me the confidence to call these people and do it because of the reading of the thing in his, for his birthday. You know, I if, if she hadn't read it that day, I don't think I would have had that idea could I call? Could I call? Should I call? Could I ask Gloria Vanderbilt to read about the death of a child? Could I do that when I knew that her son had jumped out the window? Mm. Could I, would I have the balls to ask her that? Was I going to be kind enough? She asked me. She called me. And did two chapters. Read it. Yeah, she read. The other one was about adultery. Which adultery, was, yes. It was her favorite subject in her 90s. But she, that I knew she would read. But then she said to me very clearly, don't you want me to read the one about the death? I did not ask her. She asked me. Mm. Of course, it was in the back of my mind. You know, um, everybody that I picked that I knew had some connection to the incident or the experience, or at least I thought they could have. You know, Diane von Furstenberg was the funniest of all because she refused to read the one about Santa Claus that... Um, Audra McDonald did. Audra McDonald read, yeah. And Audra read it so beautifully, but I had given it to, to Diane to read. She said, darling, I'm only here for an hour. And I cannot read that because I don't believe in God. I said, it's about Santa Claus, Diane. She said, no, it is about God. You're just using well, Santa Claus. But she read another one about fashion and the fact that dresses are too tight because they're made in other countries. She read that one. I would have loved for her to read that one, but I never thought she'd read it. But she wouldn't read the one about God. That's the perfect segue for where I'm going to go right now. Where are you going? Uh, yes. Because <laughs> I do give, we're going to give away two books tonight. Uh, and I understand that you can assign both of them. Uh, so, uh, and the word uh, that I chose for today is faith. Uh, do you have a faith? I like better than exuberance. Uh, do you have a faith? And uh, I have faith in you. Uh, I have faith in people who ask questions that tear their heart and that propel other people to give them a piece of themselves. I have faith in that. I have faith in people who don't hurt other people. Um, I have faith in people that overcome certain things, but I don't have faith in everybody. I mean, I hate Putin, mm -hmm. but I love that she the people that he's destroying, I want them to be well. I want them to be safe. I want them to have a life. Um, so, yeah, I have faith in people. I don't know that I have ethereal faith. Mm -hmm. I'm really a believer in dust and makeup. But I, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but after, I mean, when did you know that the book 
was ready for the public. When they told me if I didn't finish it, they weren't going to publish it. Oh, we're going to do a couple of giveaways, folks. And on that note, so anyway, here we are. Uh, we're going to do a drawing here. Thank you all for being here tonight. Uh, Where do I send this book when I sign it? I'm going to uh, give that information to you. I'm going to get it uh, to your assistant, uh, Danielle, who is a dear friend. And we're going to uh, do uh, one more giveaway. So, Danielle, thank you. Uh, and I will get both of, uh, I'll get the information to you. Okay. Uh, and uh, we'll see who our other winner is. Okay. Uh, and Aaron, uh, Aaron sponsored tonight's show. So thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Aaron. Um, I've had such, you know, I admire you so much. I said this before, and uh, thank you for allowing me to celebrate you tonight. Well, uh, even if you don't celebrate. Teaching me the word celebrate. Thank you. I'm sorry. Thank you for teaching me the word celebrate. Thank you. And I'm going to say my final uh, comments tonight, and then I'm going to turn the over to you, and you've got the final word tonight. Anything you want to say about anything that we talked about tonight that you want to build upon, anything that we didn't talk about that you wish we had, or just a final message that you want to leave everyone with tonight. I want to thank well, you. Sure, I'm very scared. What do I have to do? Give you me don't have to do anything. Just speak. And when you say goodbye, the credits will roll. And if you have nothing to say, just say goodbye and the credits will roll. <laughs> that works too. Uh, but anyway, I want to tell everyone, you don't look your age and other fairy tales. Okay. Uh, I know that this book uh, was written primarily for women, uh, but boy, did I get it. Oh, it's not written primarily for women. Well, I can't. It's written for anyone who has a heart. Well, I have a heart because it touched me on more levels than you can even imagine. And Judy, thank you for thank you, uh, putting your hand in there you, and making this happen tonight. <laughs> uh, I want to thank everybody for being here tonight. If this was your first time here, I hope it will not be your last. Uh, and continue on this journey with me. And we will learn more about celebrating and celebrating each other and celebrating life and celebrating art and celebrating the gifts. Stop with that word. <laughs> what was that? Stop with that word. I'll stop with the word, but I want to thank you for the gifts that you've given to the world and that you will continue to give. I mean, this book, your documentaries, it's going to live on uh, long after that obituary that that crazy lady wrote. Uh, so, uh, but thank you so much for being here tonight. Uh, everyone, leave a comment on YouTube after the show. Let me know what you think of the show. Share this with your friends. And uh, my uh, dear friend Tess, who's watching, uh, said she wants to start uh, a fan club for you. Okay. How can people get fan letters to you? I'd love a fan. How do I get it to me? Yes. 252 7th Avenue. Send it right away. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I'll get them to you. So okay. I'm going to leave the screen and it's all yours. And again, thank you for being here. I'm going to be silly. Uh, you I'm can be as silly as you want. How long do I have to be silly for? Uh, for as long as you want. It's all yours. And then how do I get off the screen? And then when you say goodbye, the credits will roll. Okay. What okay. if I do it for an hour? Uh, I'll wait. Everyone no, I don't want you to wait. Okay, go, go already. Okay, it's all you. Okay. Thank you. Goodbye. I'm turning you